Mobs of Afghans descending on the Kabul airport, so desperate to leave the country that some fell from planes. The civil war in Myanmar intensified this week as resistance fighters attacked the governing military. Syrian host- activists on Tuesday reported continuing assaults by Syrian security forces and government loyalists. Russia overnight launched its long-anticipated attack on Ukraine, striking military posts across the country. An unprovoked war in Europe is now underway. For months, some conflicts make the news bulletins daily. Then, gradually, they disappear. Others barely make the headlines at all. Aid organizations are warning of a hunger catastrophe in Sudan. As a result the UN the estimates gangs now control 80% of the Haitian capital. But gang members say they're the least of Haiti's many troubles. What makes us choose to keep watch on one war but not another? And why do some conflicts we were once obsessed with slip from our collective consciousness? Kia ora, I'm Gwen McClure. Today on The Detail, we're looking at why some wars get forgotten. We've got to choose between our suffering, which sounds really quite harsh. But I think at a certain subliminal level, that's what goes on. I can only listen to the news um, you know, once a day. I can't, I can't, I've got to ration myself, otherwise I get terminally depressed about things. Since October, the international headlines have been dominated by Israel and Gaza. The siege of Gaza is underway and a full-scale invasion by Israeli ground troops is ready to follow shortly. More than 10,000 people have now been killed in the Strip. The death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza is nearing 25,000. Nearly 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. But what's happening now in Afghanistan, Sudan, Haiti or Myanmar? And if we don't know, why not? Former Labour leader David Shearer has spent decades as a humanitarian, working all over the world, largely for the UN. I asked him why some places get all the attention and other places don't. I think it's a combination of different things. Obviously, what is happening in the media and what's immediately apparent plays a big role. There is a humanitarian conscience in many of these Western countries, you know, um, to provide assistance where it's most needed. I mean, I, I think that still is very, very prevalent. But thirdly, in some ways becoming more important is the strategic position of, of that country. So Haiti doesn't have a lot of strategic value for, for many countries, perhaps for the US. Um, it may have done in years gone by when there was a Cold War going on and in uh, a weak country could have been um, persuaded to go communist or capitalist according to you know where it was going. But many of these countries, they don't have a, a strategic value. And so therefore, as a result, they often the worst off in terms of getting, getting assistance. Those are the reasons that I think states start to decide to move aid from one place to another. We'll come back to David in a few minutes. But first, Phil Vine. He's the former producer and presenter of RNZ's World Watch, deciding what international news would reach our ears. So how did he choose? We are closely monitoring the major global networks. Okay, so we definitely take a certain amount of lead from the likes of CNN, BBC World, Al Jazeera, and to a lesser extent, uh, some of the other countries' global uh, networks. But that's one filter. Within that, you then have to work out the significance and the relevance to people in Aotearoa, because that is really the fundamental part of your job. It's to reflect the world, but through a New Zealand lens. 
What makes a conflict relevant to a New Zealand audience? So proximity, geographically and culturally. So for better or worse, a conflict in Europe will have more relevance culturally and politically than just about anywhere else like Latin America or Africa. Why do you think some wars end up in the news for a while and then just sort of don't resolve but slip out of our our headlines? I think it's fair to say that the media ignores most conflicts in the world most of the time. So there's a lot more conflict going on than the average listener or viewer or reader understands. And whether that's down to the resources of news gathering, whether that's because media organisations can't cover every conflict, so they make choices, and then that reflects on smaller countries like us who can't necessarily afford to send television crews around the world, that reflects on our choices. But there's also a feeling, I think, rightly or wrongly, that an audience can only hold so many conflicts in their head, I think. Um, I don't know whether that's written down anywhere, but there's kind of a feeling that knowing all of the key players in a conflict and understanding all of its ins and outs, that we can't necessarily be across all of that as an average viewer or listener. And so, I, I mean, I would say because of resources and because of attention spans that probably two or three conflicts tend to be in the news, leading the news at any one time. But there are many, many, many forgotten wars. Absolutely. Police in Papua New Guinea say more than 50 people have been killed in a huge massacre in the highlands. But what is the appetite, I would ask, for conflict? Because there's a certain amount of fatigue, I think, in audiences to see people suffering on the television. It's important for them to know and to understand what is going on. But I feel that if there was wall-to-wall suffering, then maybe people would stop watching. Do you think it matters for us who's telling us about it? Do you think it needs to be, you were saying that, you know, our resources, we're not going to necessarily have a New Zealander on the ground, a television crew on the ground all over the world. Do you think that matters? Do we need a Kiwi telling us about a war to care about it? I think it's a good thing, but I don't think it's a good thing for a Kiwi or an Australian or someone from Britain to fly into a place, report on it for a week and leave, because that's really not going to be a nuanced report. So I think there's there's definitely a trend in new news organisations uh, like the BBC and CNN to try and lift up and support people to report on their own countries. And I mean, they're going to have a greater understanding intrinsically of what's going on. And that's really, really important. So yes, it's really important who's telling us these stories. And yes, it's really important that the information that they have is verifiable. And yes, it's going to be far more nuanced if it's a person who lives in the conflict zone. Do you get frustrated and kind of the limited appetite of people for conflict? Or is it just something that you understand 
because you also have a limited appetite. I think probably by definition, journalists have more of a tolerance and more of an interest in um, in human conflict. Not all journalists, but they are probably driven towards it more than the average listener. But, I mean, p- people are what they are. They need what they need. They say when enough is enough. And there's no doubt there is a, there's a cap to people's ability to empathize. There's no doubt. I mean, and that's, I guess that's just self-protection because if you got upset at every little wrong in the world, you couldn't go on. You couldn't, you couldn't go on with your life, could you? Because it would be so depressing. So people have put their own cap on that, don't they? And maybe that cap is a little bit higher for journalists, but I would never judge anyone else's cap. It's just what we have to work with as an audience. Strategic value is going to look a little bit different when we're talking about journalism as opposed to the international aid community. Um, but do you think for you, does does the idea of strategic value, quote unquote, play into your decisions on, on what to cover indirectly or directly? I think there's a thing that you've probably come across in your research called the CNN effect. Okay. So since global television networks became a thing, um, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, um, there's been lots of research which has suggested that politicians and policymakers basically follow where the cameras go. So CNN, while just, you know, supposedly fearlessly reporting on conflicts around the world and making those decisions based on what they think their audience is interested in and the news value and so on, they are actually directing policy and funds and aid. And and this is strongly, I I don't know whether I necessarily wholeheartedly agree with it, but I think that it's a strongly argued piece of research. So whether you like it or not, the decisions that are made about what to report on will have an impact. What I would say, though, is that Journalists don't look at that with a strategic eye and aim for those outcomes. We should be ideally focused on what is of most relevance to our audience and our terror. And from that, there may be strategic implications from those choices. But that strategy should, should ideally play absolutely no part in the journalistic decision. Having said that, if a government as powerful as the United States government decides to send huge amounts of money, arms, or massive amounts of aid support, then there's a good chance that the cameras will follow that. If the United States chooses to ignore such places, the chances that US cameras are going to go there are probably lessened. But there's not just the major networks to consider. There are independents who are going to these places and making documentaries and struggling to get them seen. But it's not all or nothing. The media does get to these places. You may not see it on CNN, 
but because of the internet, you can search it out and you can find it. And I would encourage people to do that, to look at some of these forgotten wars, and very quickly, you can find out what the dynamics are. It doesn't take much. Remember the drama around the evacuation of Kabul when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban seized control? There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country in what can only be described as a chaotic exodus. Now, people are literally clinging on to U.S. military aircrafts as they try to take off. Two and a half years later, what is the situation in Afghanistan? Well, it's good and bad, or bad and good. Um, the, the, the government, uh, as everybody knows, clamped down when it came in, um, when the Taliban came in and, and uh, after the NATO forces left in 2021, they started, um, they were imposing extraordinary restrictions and controls, draconian restrictions and controls on women and girls. So girls aren't allowed to do, aren't allowed to participate in secondary education. No women can be employed in, in the state services and hospitals. Their beauty parlours were recently were closed down. There's been women arrested and imprisoned for not wearing the right headdresses. It's it's really a step backwards um, in, in just about every way. So there's that's appalling. There's been ongoing human rights abuses. In addition to that, a lot of um, uh, extrajudicial killings and um, and imprisonment and people disappearing, etc. Um, so that's the, the the bad side. I mean, in addition to that, the the Taliban inherited a country which was in reasonable condition because it received an enormous amount of humanitarian aid and financial aid from from Western donors, and that has largely now dried up. And um, the Bank of Afghanistan is pretty much unable to function internationally with transfers of money. Its reserves have been frozen. The aid, um, because of their their stance against women and girls, has dried up. On the other hand, you have to give the new government some uh, degree of credit. The violence has decreased across the country. There used to be lots of factional violence. That's being really clamped down on. There is an Islamic State faction that's roaming around that has been difficult to, for them to control. Um, but nevertheless, the more people are out in the fields, there are the, the school attendance, including for at primary schools for girls, has gone up. Um, the opium production has dropped by 95%. Used to, Afghanistan used to be the biggest producer of opium and heroin, ultimately heroin across the world. That's That's gone down. And farmers are turning to wheat. And the food insecurity has gone down from 41%, last time I looked, to about 29%. But it's, it, it remains a pariah state in, in the world. It's not part of the United Nations, unlikely to be there very uh, very soon, and is having increasing difficulties with its neighbours, particularly Pakistan and Iran. And Pakistan accuses it of harbouring um, militants, anti-Pakistan militants on its side of the border. And so it's ex both, both countries have expelled Afghan refugees that have taken refuge in both of those countries for a long time and push them back into Afghanistan where the, the you know, their future is pretty pretty dire, actually. Your most recent role was leading the United Nations mission in South Sudan. What was going on when you got there? Well, it, South Sudan is the youngest country in the United Nations, so it came into being really in, in, in 2011. 
Um, it used to be part of Sudan. It was the biggest country within Africa. And that was seen as a, as a huge triumph. A nation is born. The symbol of its sovereignty and identity flies for the first time. But straight afterwards, it dissolved into a conflict between the parties in South Sudan. And so when I went in in 2017, the, there was a, really a full-scale war uh, under, going on across the country, between, largely between the um, Riak Mashar forces, who was aligned to the Nua tribe, and the president, um, Selva Kia, who was more aligned to the Dinka forces. And so we were really trying to um, broker some sort of agreement on the ground, but it was it was very, very difficult, and there was lots and lots of people who died and were, and were pushed out of the country. Well, that, that worked, though, didn't it? Is South Sudan in a better place now? Uh, yes, it is. I'm, I'm really, it was really gratifying to be there at this particular at that, that particular time because we went from 2016 where I think there was about a million and a half refugees and a million and a half people displaced inside the country, tens of thousands of people killed, to a ceasefire or a cessation of hostilities at the end of 2017. And that started us on the route towards a proper peace agreement. And then after the peace agreement, there was a transitional government uh, where both of those two people, Riyak Mashar and Selva Kia, came in and became uh, vice president and president, uh, respectively. There was a lot of work done by the regional countries and most particularly by Sudan, um, bringing those parties together. And we played a, a pretty big role, I think, in, in supporting that, leading from behind, as we like to call it, um, and making sure there was stability on the ground. And so now, right as, as we speak, they're talking about elections at the end of 2024. I'm not sure if that'll be ready to go by that stage, but um, it's pretty gratifying to see where they've come from and where they are now in South Sudan in terms of you know, the, the conflict and the potential of what could happen in the future. But now it's Sudan in crisis. Well, Sudan, this is one of the really big uh, conflicts that I don't believe is getting as much attention as it, as it should. I mean, obviously, you know, we've had a Ukraine, uh, we've now got Gaza hogging the news, and Sudan, unfortunately, has slipped out of the news to, to a large extent. I mean, Sudan was ruled by a, a dictator, Omar al-Bashir, for nearly 30 years. Um, he was pushed out by the military in 2019. With him gone, the two big forces, the RSF and the armed forces, have gone to gone into battle. And they've been fighting it out since April last year. And it's been absolutely devastating for, for Sudan. I understand one the latest figure is about 1.7 million people have fled to other countries. And there's about 6 million people who have had to flee their, their own homes and villages and whatever and go and seek shelter elsewhere. So it's a, an, an appalling situation and it doesn't seem to be resolving itself anytime soon. It's pretty bleak sometimes, so let's end on a happier note. Sometimes wars fall from the headlines because situations actually improve. I worked for a while in both Liberia and Sierra Leone, which are right on the western side of, of Africa and West Africa. Um, and despite the fact that there are, have been like six or seven coups in West Africa in the past two years, which is a real step back for democracy, Sierra Leone and Liberia have gone from the sort of place that Sudan and 
South Sudan we're in to where they have a basically a functioning democracies in both places. Look, there's problems. There's no doubt about that. But they have become much more stable, respected. And when I think back 20, maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was in um, Sierra Leone and, and people's People who voted in the election were having their hands cut off by rebels who didn't want them to vote because um, they would put their finger in ink after they voted, and that would show that they had voted. So that was indelible ink. It wore off after a few days, but then they couldn't go back and vote again. Um, and they were caught with these uh, with these marks on their fingers, and their rebels would, would cut their hands off. Again, um, I saw. I remember standing in a line in in Sierra Leone in their first election in more than twenty years, and being with people talking about they were just so happy about voting. And suddenly, shots rang out around the place. There, were, there was firing, and the and the people, the lines of people queued up to vote stayed there and some woman said to me oh they they can kill us if they want but i i'm still going to stay here and and and, and vote uh, it, you know you just sort of breaks your heart really um to see people who you know who are so determined to 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 live a better life and are so let down by by people around them so it's a uh, yeah so those are two <laughs> two good stories, and there are, there are others. But unfortunately, there's a great raft at the moment of, of uh, bad stories to to balance that up. Unfortunately, that's all for today. Thank you to David Shearer and Phil Vine. The detail is funded through RNZ and NZ on Air. This episode was engineered by Phil Bench. It was produced by Alexia Russell and Davina Zimmer. I'm Gwen McClure. Matewa. Wa.